Welcome to Backlogs, an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and evolving practice of arts management in Singapore. The world of arts management is a vast and wide-ranging one, and this podcast series is a humble attempt at beginning to map this world and chart its growth. This pilot series focuses on the management of the theatre and literary art worlds, a process that brings text to the stage or page. It also focuses on the time period of the 1980s to 1995, an exciting time for the local arts ecosystem, because of the crucial work of the arts managers in the increasing professionalization of the arts and cultural industries. Head to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G for more information and resources. In this episode, we're focusing on the early founding years and the development of local theatre companies and the corresponding growth of theatre managers from, of course, the period of 1980 to 1995. The mid-1980s saw the proliferation of local theatre companies such as Act 3, that was in 1984, Theatre Works, 1985, now, of course, uh, known by its new name, T-Works, High Theatre, that was in 1986, Asia in Theatre Research Circus, ATRC, that was uh, 1987, of course, most fondly remembering the late William Teo and uh, Theatre Ekamatra, that was in 1988. Now, it's within this very small but flourishing environment of theatre companies starting in this time period that we trace the origins of what would become the Necessary Stage, or TNS. The genesis was defined by a bold and youthful spirit. There were about 20 NUS undergraduates, plucky group, who referred to themselves mysteriously but emphatically by the symbol of the exclamation point. They won an award for outstanding production at the NUS Drama Festival in 1986. And little did they know that over 30 years later, they would be renowned as one of Singapore's most prominent theatre companies. Back then, who were the members at that point in time, the exclamation mark or the exclamation point? Let me just read off some interesting names. Elvin Tan, of course, the president. There was the PR office Harish Sharma and the artistic committee. You had Ivan Heng, yes, Elvira Holmberg, Lao Siu Mei, Nyo Sui Lin, Josephine Peter, and Ovidia Yu. Some very, very well known names, and they're actually also now associated with other companies. But this is because it's 30 years later, right? Uh, the necessary stage, known especially for their methodology of devised work now, as well as their focus on education, collaboration, community, and socially conscious work, began in the 1980s. So there's a lot to talk about. How do arts managers grapple with the goals of art making and the demands of stakeholders? How do they fulfill the needs of the audience while discussing important issues of the day in society? We're going to hear from two of our guests today, their first-hand experiences of facing such challenges and the joy, first and foremost, of making work that strives to make a difference two arts managers who are both early alumni of TNS and who continue to contribute to the arts in various ways through their careers. Clarice Ng. Hi. <laughs> Clarice was working with The Necessary Stage from 1987 and then from 1992 to 1999 where she was their first full-time production technical manager. So she shares with us about their early days. We'll come to her and, and ask her to fill in some of those years. And our second guest, Go Su Lin. 
Hello. Hi, Ooh, Sulin. Haven't spoken to you for a long, long time, Sulin, because you've been very busy at ITI. But Sulin actually began volunteering with TNS in their early days, and she joined them a little later uh, than Clarice as their full-time general manager in 1994. Yeah. So together, we'll explore what the role of the arts manager of TNS looked like at different points in its evolution. So, Clarice, can I start with you first? What was your title back then when you first joined TNS? I, I think it depends on what you mean by join. I, I was a volunteer back in the day when we were all still undergraduates. Uh, and I did I, I did various things. I crewed, I stage managed, I did some lighting design, I think. And then it was only maybe three years after we graduated that uh, TNS was in a position to hire. And Elvin asked me whether I'll go full-time with them. Then I became the very first production slash technical manager. Yep, and that's the role I held for um, seven years till I left in 1999. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was the time, if I could just put things in context, Elvin was still a teacher. Am I correct? He was yes. a full-time teacher in a secondary school. Yes, that's correct. And I was working in a bookstore at that point in time for three years after graduation. And I was I was still sort of part-timing here, part-timing, doing stuff at substation, blah, blah. And then he said, do you want to go full-time with us? We've got the money. So I said, great, let's just do it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think you might have been one of the earliest arts freelancers <laughs> by your description. Well, I, I'm not sure, but yeah, okay. I mean, I, uh, as a freelancer, I actually I actually got paid, I remember. Substation, I did work with NAC as well. Back then, I don't think it was NAC, right? I think it was the Ministry of Culture, if I'm not wrong. Uh, and all that before I joined TNS. With TNS, I think everything was still on a volunteer basis. Yeah. Okay, great. So, Sulin, you joined as full-time GM in 1994, the first general manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember what the state of the company was like when you first joined? I was a big fan of TNS. I watched a lot of their plays. And from 1987, I volunteered with them, but less often than Clarice did. Then I was a lawyer for a while. And when I got tired of that, coincidentally, Elvin and Harish came to talk to me and said they wanted to have a company manager and would I try it out. So in 1994, I became their administration manager. I resisted the title general manager for a while because I really did not know what I was doing. They were doing quite well. They had been very fiscally responsible by underpaying themselves. <laughs> so they were not in the red or anything like that. They had a key staff for certain areas of responsibility, but of course they were underpaid, but then they were also taking on extra responsibilities because you needed a large team to put out four shows a year. And that's what they were doing as well as their work for schools, etc. So they were just a group of very dedicated, committed people underpaid and doing everything they could to, to keep the work going. Mm-hmm. So what do, do you remember what were the eventual pull factors that made you join TNS and leave your legal career? Okay, so I started off as a very enthusiastic young lawyer, but I think after the first two years, the shine wore off a bit. And you got tired of always being in litigation, seeing clients who are only in trouble. That's why they come to you. I guess also at that time, it was either I leave or I go for junior partner and be responsible for bringing in clients. So I was juggling all that and thinking, no, I do want to leave the law, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it was really my luck that Elvin and Harish came to see me and said they were wanted to further professionalise the necessary stage and they asked me to join as manager. Mm-hmm. I had no managerial experience, but they knew I had organised stuff before in school and I had volunteered with TNS, so they knew I could, I suppose, manage some things. So I agreed to try and then I've been an arts manager ever since. In 
it's interesting that right from the start, TNS recognized the importance of having a strong arts management component. When they registered it as a society in 1987, two components were set up, an admin exco and an artistic committee. And I quote, The Admin Exco oversees productions throughout the year, takes the role of producer, provides TNS with the capacity to meet up with the anticipated increase in paperwork and to put forth an organised and neat front when meeting with corporates and people outside the group. The Admin Exco will relieve the Artistic Committee of paperwork and other administrative demands so that they can concentrate on the artistic quality, direction and vision of TNS. End quote. It's interesting that when TNS began, they actually had a bit of a structure already, right? As I shared about having the admin as well as the artistic committee. In terms of doing that, could you share with us a little bit about the role and work of the arts manager at TNS? I came in pretty late in 94. There was already a marketing person and an admin executive and of course the production manager. So it was, of course that wasn't enough to get all the work done. So everyone did a lot of stuff that was not under their names, right? And everyone attended a lot of rehearsals because everyone was so interested in what the work was, how the work was developing. But but they essentially had these clear sort of focuses of responsibility identified. And Harish and Heng Luan, sorry, when I came in, Heng Luan, Kok Heng Luan was business development manager. So he had taken over the financial management and I think some of the fundraising but Harish being such a natural edit, he was actually a key figure in the fundraising. It's interesting how despite having a clear setup at the start where arts administration and art making were intended to be more separate, the role of the arts manager at TNS was actually more fluid. In fact, another intriguing point about TNS is that many of today's luminaries of the theatre and entertainment world are alumni of TNS in one way or the other. And many of them, whether cast or crew, actually took on the roles and responsibilities that we would associate with arts managers today. Due to their lean size, everyone at TNS often wore multiple hats, taking on multiple roles, regardless of whether they were considered artistic or managerial. No type of role was higher or lower than the other. Such was the collaborative and non-hierarchical structure of their practice. In fact, in 1991, the resident playwright Harish Sharma was actually listed as the first and only full-time staff, a full-time arts manager and PR manager. That was in 1991, where he was the first full-time staff earning something like $1,400 a month to do everything. Could you share more with us about the different people who have worked at TNS and the different roles they took on? I think it would be only fair to put some names to it. The name of Kok Heng Luan, right? So Kok Heng Luan was in TNS. He His first role was? Well, it was before my time and I was hired. He was business development manager. But as soon as I got in, he had a couple of handover meetings with me and then he was off directing a play. Okay. So TNS. Then, and that's why uh, he's credited in a lot of the early brochures as resident director. I think the yes, following yes. year, we gave him the title resident yeah, director. Correct. Okay. And it was very clear he was no longer doing any admin work. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had handed over to yes, you. that's okay. right. Okay. And uh, Julius Fu? Julius Fu, from the time that I knew him, Julius was always the actor, the consummate senior physical actor. But he also was the admin manager at one point? He managed the Theatre for Youth Ensemble from 1993. Yes. And then when we... He was... But he was always a part-time actor with TNS, right? Sure. And then later on in the later 90s when TNS had the funds for a full-time ensemble of actors, Julius was one of them. 
in between, I can't remember, did he do admin stuff for the... I'm very sure he did. Theatre for mean, Youth I, branch? I think yes. he, he did admin stuff for Theatre for Youth branch. He did ad hoc admin things as well for various things. Also ad hoc admin things. He also yes. did production work, right? Because for the Theatre for Youth branch, at least when we went out for shows, they wouldn't normally need me, you right. know? So most of the logistics was done by him. So you, you did what you had to do. Like. We didn't hire a separate stage manager to tour with the shows. Uh, the actors did everything themselves, led usually by uh, Julius if he was on show. Yeah, I remember some of those days. I did some of these shows before, but not that early, a mm. bit later on. And and you would be very lucky if you had one stage manager with you who would also operate the sound mm. yes. and basically layers with the school. Uh, yeah. you know, there was person. Julius, actually. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that lays on what was actually Julius. And he was also our resident driver. <laughs> did you all have a van at that point no, in time? No, we didn't. We used his car and okay. he had a roof rack. And we this was for uh, Bukit, Legend of Bukit Mira, right? So when we toured, we had a, a, a little Chinese drum, we had a stool, we had sarongs, we had various things which we all packed into boxes and we put strap oh, and, and, and two and we had we had these bamboo poles, the galas, that, that, that he had tied together to make two tripods that we would put, hang a backdrop on on another pole and all this was strapped to his roof rack. I don't know how, why we were never stopped by the police but yeah, that's how we transported everything, everything on his roof. Of the car, yeah. I I guess the roads were also probably not as busy at at that point in time. Another name, another early name, Freddie, Freddie Lowe. What was his position? Freddie was marketing executive. He had a lot of uh, great marketing ideas. I do want to shout this out. He came up with the Triangle Project where TNS found sponsors for tickets for people who are less privileged. And we even see that scheme being used today by the Esplanade under another name, of course, but this came from Freddie Lowe. Uh, so his title was marketing executive, but he was also in charge of PR. He was uh, doing ticket sales. He would do front of a house most of the times. And part-time and, actor. And the occasional acting job. Occasionally acting. And also backstage, if he was needed, he would do whatever was needed. Yeah, I actually worked with Freddie in my first job. I interviewed him. He was, of course, he had joined uh, SSO after that. Mm. And also, I, I one, my first play that I acted with TNS, he was in the lead role. He played A, in Invisibility. It was a Chinese play. Oh, Invisibility is your first play. Yes, okay. but it, this was late 1990s. <laughs> 97, was it? Yes, yes, yeah. Yes, like, I remember. Yeah, 96 or 97, I can't remember. Thereabouts. Now, in 1986, at the time of their founding, they stated that, and I quote, local playwrights have the opportunity to see their plays produced. Now, this is one concrete step in helping local drama mature. And we see this as the necessary stage at this point. So the founding of the necessary stage stemmed from a desire to support the development of local drama, featuring local characters, local language, and local issues. They are also known for their work with communities. So the practice of community arts may seem like a very modern year 2000 sort of concept, but TNS was already practicing it in the early 90s. In 1994, they launched their community service branch where they were the resident theatre company of the Tampanese Regional Library and their rehearsal and office space was then at 126 Canehill Arts Centre. But of course, having a residency in a community space actually gave them the opportunity to make work for communities in the heartlands. In 1992, they also developed a Theatre for Youth branch, recognising the importance of theatre in schools. 
Theatre for Youth, uh, with the support of the NAC, they were actually one of the first organisations to have a programme dedicated to the importance of arts in education. But TNS was also very versatile, taking on commissions from unlikely companies such as Apple Computers, Shell and the British American Tobacco Company, BAT. Let's just dial back a little bit and talk about how the programs were structured within TNS. Was there a, the concept of the main season at that point in time? And then Theatre for Youth branch, is, is that how it was structured? Yes, I think it was very clear that there was a main season that was um, where the main artistic expression went. But because Elvin always had a very strong in- interest in education, there was always an active sort of Theatre for Youth branch, even though it wasn't called that until 1995. There was always very active work for schools. Yeah, and and this was Elvin's brainchild, mm, mostly. Mostly, okay. It was mostly his brainchild. Yeah, I say this, of course, because I think we see similar models that have evolved with many theatre companies over the years, where they always have some sort of a main season, and then they have a, a tiered structure where they have they may have some teens teen programs, young adult actor uh, acting programs, and they have some for the very very young as well. Yeah, I think. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the early support mm-hmm. that you had. You, you mentioned a British Council, for example, and coming out of NUS, I think there were also some of these SO lunchtime concerts, opportunities to perform at the Shell Theatre. I can see you nodding here. Yes. Uh, these memories <laughs> coming back. How, how <laughs> instrumental were these corporates in developing your role as an arts manager and developing the company? I, I, I think, let me focus on Shell Theatre and the Shell. I think it's called a show lunchtime program because the ESO one was on campus. I mean, we were on campus, so not that it wasn't important, but I think specifically to TNS, the Shell lunchtime series gave us an opportunity to stage uh, a number of small productions, but nevertheless, it meant that people could try out ideas and so on. And it, it was a very generous kind of support, if you ask me. Not so much the money, but the fact that they were were kind enough to give us the space. And it, and, and in those days, I think the theatre probably had some kind of facilities technician, but no theatre technician. And it was a small space, but they had stage lighting, a sound system and so on. And, and this was in Shenton Way, Shenton right? To Way. give context. That, correct. <laughs> Raffles Place, actually, to be specific. You come out and then, you know, it's just there. And 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 we we had the run of the place. That's how kind they were and how generous they were. So I would we would move in a couple of days earlier. And uh, again, we would do I would do the lighting for it. And then we could just rehearse and... It, it was nice because they trusted us. So nobody came and like, oh, what are you doing? You know, and and I think that kind of support you don't quite see these days. I think every event, I don't, I don't even know whether corporates have venues like these or if they do, whether they would hand it over to a group to to actually, yeah, just do their own thing. So I, I can't remember how many plays we staged there, but quite a number, including Harish's plays, I think. Yes, I, I, I have to say the other thing that was good for TNS there was that the lunchtime audience coming from Shell and also surrounding offices were quite discerning actually and it was it was really good to see their responses to whatever was happening on stage. Yeah, actually I think the program itself, I mean of course we weren't the only people to perform there but the program itself I think had an impact in the area because I think they had a, a pretty good programming going on and it was a regular thing for the Raffles Place crowd. So during lunchtime, I think people had something to look forward to if they wanted to mm, uh, mm. just consume the arts. Mm. I remember having a chance to perform once a singing program, I think, at, at the Shell Theatre as well. Mm. And my mother, who worked in Gentle at that point in time, could come to watch and Ooh, find lovely. out what her daughter is up to. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Besides the Shell Theatre and, and the campus events, I think TNS also worked very much in the community, right? The Tampanese Regional Library was a space that you worked in a lot. Can you tell us 
what you remember, how this came to be? Yeah, I think towards the end of 1994, TNS had always had interest in working with community, right? Developing plays with different groups from the community, etc. But there was this idea of taking the arts out to the heartlands. I'm not sure why. And uh, we were ready to test it out. So we wanted to not just come, you know, drop in with a show and then disappear. Elvin and Harish always thought, thought deeper than that. And I think Hingluan as well was very interested in this community uh, venture. So we went to talk to Tampanese regional library people, I don't know why, and <laughs> proposed that we do a series of programs for about a year. And they agreed. And I remember we had some funding from Arts Fund, as well as our regular theatre grant. And we put it, we put it towards, I mean, Arts Fund supported this particular community venture. And we put up a series of plays. We developed a new play, Rosna, there. We maybe repeated one play. We did a, a few workshops for the community. I can't we, remember we what devised we one did. play with the, with the community because I remember... I think it was called There, was a tr- there Is a Tree. Wow. What, what I remember <laughs> from it was that one of the residents who acted in it was this elderly gentleman who was very active for his age. I think he was probably 80 years old at that time or close to 80 and, and he was one of the residents who actually worked with us on that play. Wonderful. Yeah. So auditions were held in the community. Yes, yes. So there's very active, meaningful engagement, mm. right, with the community there. And when you say it's an elderly gentleman also, I think that's wonderful because it crosses, you know, all the generations, the young people who are coming out interested from the university as well as the older generation as well. TNS was the resident theatre company for the Tampanese Regional Library and by 1997, they had performed to more than 24,000 people in the HDB neighbourhoods and in the library. Library. Uh, I think I myself watched a play that TNS put up, and that was at the MRT station, if That's I remember right. correctly. Yeah, we did a tour, I remember. We performed at Bus Interchange, MRT station. Was it with Julius and Jean by any chance? It wasn't. It was with Geraldine and Rajesh ah, and Hosan. Okay, yeah. I remember oh, okay. a, a purple umbrella yeah. of sorts. <laughs> yeah, we did a community tour. But we, we also toured, actually. We've been touring community venues for a while, even with our Theatre for Youth Ensemble, actually. In fact, that was the primary space, performance space for the Youth Ensemble. So they would they would write their own plays and we would put them together and then we would tour. Different libraries. Different libraries. Because if you, you were not charging for tickets, they would let you have the space for free. Yep. And then you could get just new audience in. You know? Yeah, so Julius mm-hmm. and myself, basically, we would take um, our kids out. Of course, in those days, things were a little bit more lax. We, we hired a lorry... And then we would drive it and then the kids would sit at the back with all the props. With all the props. <laughs> Something that would probably be frowned on today. Yeah. But but that's how we brought the shows around. So we did yeah. And in terms of setting it all up, the role of the arts manager, would you say, is in negotiating for these this these yes. things? Like we're not gonna charge. Negotiating for the space, making the bookings, making sure the right people are there to receive them when they appear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about crowd management and front of house? Because um, this was in the community. Making you know. friends with the li- li- librarians in the space and letting them make the announcements at the right time. And, <laughs> right? Yes. And then managing your own front of house. Um, yeah. But in the open spaces like the MRT stations and the bus interchanges, wow, those. those, it's a very porous Yeah. So, so I mean, we, we had, we had uh, volunteers. Again, I, if I remember correctly, most of our crew were still volunteers at that point in time. Yes. So they would come in on, a, I mean, I would roster them. They would come in and there'll be crowd control, people to stand up, make sure that they don't walk through our... But, but again, it's community theatre. So you do expect people to like ignore your ushers, right? And then just walk through your performance space, right? So the pieces were devised with that in mind. You, you can't like, stop people. Even now, when I 
go for community performances at the, at the heartlands and all that, you see people walk right through the dance piece. I mean, it still happens. Mm. But a lot of the crew were, were, were just volunteers who were interested, who, like, who liked the work. Yeah, and they came. I think some of our youth on some people from those days as well would volunteer in, in other capacities for other shows as well. Yeah, yeah. some interesting alumni as well. Yeah, yeah tell as us a bit about the alumni. <laughs> I think the current man- the general manager of uh, TNS, Melissa Lim, was an yes, alumni. Yes, Melissa Lim was an alumni. If I just run through the names, Ko Siu Hui, who went on to found art spot with Nyam Sulin, Alfian Saad, of course, and uh, Musa Faisal, Shamin Tan, who was active in the Arts for the Elderly, is it, I think? Yeah, the AIC... Yeah, so quite a number. Did I leave out anyone? Yeah, uh, no, not not from the ensemble, but other volunteers. Uh, Ridwan Anwar, oh, Isis yes. Ko, mm. now at the Esplanade. Mm, mm, okay. Now we'd like to talk a little bit about spaces of rehearsal and presentation. An interesting aspect of the growth of TNS is the type of spaces for rehearsal and presentation that they've occupied in their 34-year history. TNS started out ideating and rehearsing from passageways of NUS, as well as the bedroom of artistic director Alvin Tan. After registering themselves as a company, they took advantage of the arts housing scheme that was launched in 1985, so a lot happening in the, the 80s, as you can see. And because this was launched in 1985, it actually granted them a proper and more stable office at the Taluk Aye Performing Arts Centre. That, that was in 1990. You don't see the Taluk Aye Performing Arts Centre now because it's been pulled down. It's uh, made way for a, a big office block. And then, of course, in the history of TNS from Tapek, Taluk Aye Performing Arts Centre. They actually moved on to reside in 126 Canehill Arts Centre and then Marine Parade Community Centre and their next chapter will be in Paya So when it comes to presentation venues, the mid-1980s was a time where large theatre spaces such as the Esplanade did not exist and the National Theatre at River Valley had also been demolished by that time. So TNS started out performing in the lecture theatres of NUS and by 1991, they were able to regularly present work at the Drama Centre under the Ministry of Culture's semi-residential status in theatre scheme. Very long acronym here, I'm going to say it out, S-S-R-I-T-S. Ministry of Culture's semi-residential status in theatre scheme. And from there, they moved on to present at larger and more professional venues such as the DBS Auditorium and the World Trade Centre Auditorium. Interestingly, the DBS Auditorium and the World Trade Centre Auditorium are also not in existence anymore. So this is a real gem in Singapore theatre history. If we port back to the, the idea of the spaces that you use as well, the old drama centre, the old drama yes, centre, which nostalgia. we have to say goodbye to. Yeah. I, I really like that space as well. That's actually where the current car park of the National Museum, uh, museum yeah. is, right? That, that was a space that you used a lot. You want to share a little bit about some of the projects that were done there and what memories they bring back? Wow, I think all the iconic ones uh, were done at the drama. I mean, the ones that most people associate TNS with, from off-centre to Pillars to Galileo, all done there. Um, I was in Galileo. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly remembered. Yes. yes, I used that too. Yes, Drama Centre at Fort Canning as well as Substation were the two main spaces that we did our work. It was home la, to us because we, we did... I think in those days, we, the requirement was four shows a year, right? For yes, four season. shows a year. So it was either or. So I think four shows four shows at Drama Centre can't no, be that. No, I, It was either, either or. 
Yeah, I, and I think we only did Victoria Theatre once in those years, 1997. Yeah, so up, yeah. up to 1995, it yeah. was Substation and Drama Centre. After 95, I think more Drama Centre, maybe. Mm. Okay, I'd, I'd like to just ask uh, some questions for context so that our listeners also can understand what the situation was like then. One was, f- the requirement was for a year. Can you give us more clarity on that? Four shows a year for a particular grant? Four original that- shows a year for the theatre grant, which is the equivalent of the major, major grant now. Yeah, it actually started from the residential scheme where you had space at the local theatres like Drama Centre. You were supposed to do four original shows a year. And then that that carried over into the theatre grant. And it was only a few years later, I think late 90s, that the Arts Council took in the feedback from groups that that was too much, especially if you insist on original shows, and that we should focus more on deepening the quality and maybe extending production runs and not just new shows, new shows, new shows all the time. Mm -hmm. My second question is actually with regard to managing the arts, the finances, the audience, I suppose, and also producing that show. Clarice mentioned that you only did Victoria Theatre once. So clearly the the big difference between Victoria Theatre and the Drama Centre then and the substation was size. Yeah. Can you shed a bit of light on what, what are some of the things that arts managers worry about when you have to deal with a big venue versus a smaller one? <laughs> break even. Um, <laughs> but of course, if you're in a non-profit theatre company, it's because you usually don't break even anyway. But you still want a decent amount of sales, right? So, so when it comes to size, I think that's the first thing that you worry about. Secondly, production budgets will go up as well. So you're already investing more. And then... Also the nature of the work, if the, whether the work fits a... I mean, Victoria Theatre used to put it very bluntly, you'll be more epic, right? Because it's a big venue, audiences are far away. The work that you want to stage there will clearly have to be on bigger scale then. So it really depends on the kind of work that you're doing. I think as, as a general rule then, and, and I think it's probably still true for TNS today, that the work is a smaller scale. I think the, the intimacy is important. That's why I think those two venues were really great for us because Drama Centre, even though it, had, it, it was it was two levels, right? It had a circle, a balcony upstairs. Still small, very intimate. And I, I, I really think we lack that space. Actually, even today, of course, now we're all looking at the waterfront theatre that's coming out of Esplanade. Um, not going to, not. I suspect not quite the same. I think still bigger. We really need a space that's really small like that. Maybe, maybe Wild Rice's space comes closer. 320 seats. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Wild Rice comes closest. Then, of course, the substation. But of course, now we, we do have black boxes. So the theatre studio Esplanade does a good job for that. But Theatre Works had a black box, which was also, also very nice. But that was exclusively theatre works. Mm. So for TNS substation was the, the obvious choice. Yeah. Theatre works black box is the one that was on Fort Canning Hill. That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What are some of the memories that you had in your earliest days, challenges or otherwise? I, I think, of course, having been there when the company first started and we were still in Elvin's house, we Elvin's bedroom was our office, right? And his backyard was where we stored out. And in those days, we didn't return the set to somebody. If you had a box set with the walls and everything, we brought them back with us. The idea was to repurpose them, of course. And all, everything was stored in Elvin's, you know, backyard. And his parents were remarkable. His parents are remarkable people. The fact that they allowed us to store it by uh, four flats in the, his backyard was like crazy. But they, they put up with it, rehearsals in their house. Yeah, so it was nice to move to Tarpak and we finally could move everything out. But I think our Tarpak room was on the second floor or the third floor and we had to carry everything up. And then we invested in floorboards, but everything had to be done by hand. So I think a lot of things in those days were were very manual and most people work full-time. 
So if I needed to do anything in the daytime, it would just be me. So if I had to prep for rehearsals uh, in the tapak hall, which was basically the canteen, right? And I had to rig up lights, I would just go up on a ladder. N- nobody thought about safety in those days, huh? and just climb up on my own. If I had fallen, no one would have known. Even, I think Osman, I think his name was the caretaker. I don't think he was awake in the afternoons and I, I probably would have. He lived there with his family, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he? he did, he did. With the chickens and all. So, yeah. I mean, that was very common in those days because it really was an old school compound. Mm. So it was the same idea. So we just rig everything, use household dimmers, cable everything up. It just, just It's just like that. You just did what you needed to do. Uh, so in a way, that's nice. Of course, everything is much more professional these days, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah... Some, sometimes the old school way of doing things is still feels good lah. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, there's a bit of a romantic notion know, there right? as well. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you didn't get injured. Yes, I know. That's Thank true. <laughs> well, actually, that's interesting. I mean, was there any concept? Arts managers will look out for actors, at least I can say that for now, and they'll tell me that we are covered under a production insurance. Mm. Was there something of that concept? I don't then? remember insurance. Actually, you? our first concern back then was to get everyone better paid if possible. <laughs> that was the first concern because no one could make their living from, from theatre. So imagine when I was hired by TNS, I was hired out of a law firm and then I found out what the pay scales were. Irvin Harish was still paying themselves I think not even $2,000 a 2008. month. 2008. Yeah. 2008. See, not even $2,000 a month. Mm. So I was just horrified. <laughs> Mm. and they were I, I, the company was in good shape because they were so physically responsible but why? because the artists were sacrificing themselves mm. yeah so our first concern was to um, not just raise their pay levels but also for the freelancers who were living hand to mouth it was really hand to mouth I think the last people to get paid for anything were crueler I still remember so we tried to change yeah. that a bit as I learned more about cash flow and I managed TNS's cash flow better I tried to pay the little guys first because it was really, no one could make a living and it was so hard on them. Mm. So, so even before we thought about buying insurance, that was where we were trying to make things better. Okay, uh, I have here a list of a lot of 80s shows done by TNS. 1986, God. But that was not done under TNS. It was yes, as exclamation, exclamation mark. point, yeah. uh, exclamation mark. An adaptation of Woody Allen's God for National University of Singapore Students Union. Nusu Arts Festival. Then God was done a few more times. <laughs> <laughs> Restaging. There was Diversion, 1986. Part of NUS Humanities Day, sponsored by ESO. I think I watched that one. You watched but, that yeah, one? Yeah, but I didn't. I wasn't involved yet. Okay. Yeah. The Smoking Car, 1986, also sponsored by ESO, part of the NUS Humanities Day. Also 1986, Hollywood Heroes, part of the Alpha Club Annual Dinner and Dance. <laughs> wow. Okay, so I, I'm seeing how this goes. This is a sort of very student effort, doing, mm. taking advantage of any opportunity you can get. Yeah. And then I'm going to fast forward a little bit. To 1987, The Waiting Room and Dead on Cue. Clarice, this was your debut as stage manager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I could say I remember it, but I don't. Obviously, I remember working on the show, but I'm, I think back then I wasn't sure what a stage manager did beyond getting the props and making sure. I think my idea back then of being a stage manager was getting things together as in from and making sure that the props were... So it was very props-oriented. You make sure that the <laughs> props are set correctly and so on. Because I think each department ran independently, right? So the lighting designer, the, if, if there even was a lighting designer. So that was probably my 
my first show, I think. As yeah, it yeah. was. Because <laughs> <laughs> the research says so. <laughs> I was a bump out crew. <laughs> yeah, and, and whatever I knew about stage yes. management was like watching other people. Work. And of course, nobody was trained, right? Not in the circles that we moved in. So it, if you ask me, it's the blind leading the blind, but in a good way, I suppose, in hindsight. Mm. In hindsight. But it's interesting because I'm looking at the other names that I can see right here in front of me. Set designer was Ivan Heng. Mm-hmm. The playwright was Ovidia Yu. Mm-hmm. The director was Elvira Holmberg. Mm-hmm. Elvira, of course, uh, at that point in time, she was also a student, is it? Or was she a teaching already? I think she graduated before me, so probably teaching already. Probably teaching yeah. already. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting looking at this piece of history because you say blind leading the blind, but also things were very organic at that point in time yes. and there was space in a way to make mistakes I, I think we didn't question it because remember not a lot of people were trained right so you didn't feel so like oh okay I don't know what I'm doing of course we all didn't know to some extent we just did what, what obviously needed to be done you know and then of course when we look at it now we say oh dear what were we doing back then right but, <laughs> but we just everybody just I think the only I can't think of a single person because I even trained as a lawyer Right, nobody trained as a theatre practitioner. The closest was someone like Haresh doing theatre studies. Right, even then, he oh, no, he literature. He, he theatre did, studies yeah. didn't exist. Didn't explain. He, he he did what this course? I can't remember the module now, but it was the Maybe closest thing, yeah, to the theatre thing. So. Okay. So it turns out law was the closest to the theatre. <laughs> really? I think so. I do think so. If you think of the names associated oh, with it, right? you think of how many lawyers How there many are. lawyers, right? Your yeah. King Sen, your Sui Lin, Ivan Heng, a, a lot of a them. A lot of lawyers. Yeah. Anything that you remember, any particular show that you remember from those 80s years? 80s, early 90s. Oh, 80s, early 90s. Still building, I suppose. Still building? Yeah, that yeah. really stood out. I really enjoyed this chord and others, which a lot of people don't remember now. Mm. Drama Centre. It was a bit, yeah, it might yeah. be a bit dated if you restage it now, but I loved it. Well, I remember it was a comedy on friendship and then yes. also a lot about racial prejudice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes, it was very nice. Three-hander, am I correct? Correct. Four, three. Three. Three-hander? Three yeah, three-hander. The, mm. the boys, yeah, the boys each... Played the other one's father. And I think there was right? a song, yeah. right? There was a, I can't remember the song though. <laughs> I'm going to fast forward again to 1990. And that was the performance of Those Who Can't Teach. And that was performed at the opening of the substation. Mm. As we know, substation, uh, the building has been returned to NAC and all that. Your thoughts, thinking back? Those were exciting years, right? Substation had just opened and it, it was a first sort of multidisciplinary space and I, I, I wasn't just doing TNS work at the, I, I was, I was, I was working in the bookstore, but I was also freelancing on the site. So I did a couple of things with the substation, and I think at that point in time, I, I didn't necessarily see myself as a arts manager or production manager. Even I think at that point in time, I might have been more interested in lighting actually. Mm. Yeah, but of course, when the job offer came to be production manager, I'm like, well, it's a job, you know. You know, finally work in theater full time, right? Why not? Yeah, and I, I didn't think I was great at lighting anyway. <laughs> but you got to do you tr- you got to try many different I, things. I did, I did. So mm-hmm. and and after I went I went full time with TNS, I did get to light anyway. But I think given the work that I needed to do as production manager, there wasn't a lot of time. It, it wasn't the 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 best thing to do, you know, double hat 
because as production manager, I shouldn't be looking at one aspect only, right? So mm. I, I found it difficult to light MBPM, so I dropped the lighting. One of the things that I remember about the substation, even though generally I, I work in the capacity only as an actor, is that in order to cross backstage, if it's a very, very big cross, we would have to go outside, go around, around the cafe, yes. Fat Frog, yes. and, and come back <laughs> into in, the garden, into and then the garden. backstage and then come back around again. Correct. Yeah. Or the other creepier way is to go in the basement and then climb up the ladder and emerge from uh, like a trap door. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One of the major defining traits that makes up the very DNA of the necessary stage is their devising methodology. Here is a quote by Harish Sharma in the book, Reading the Room, A Playwright's Devising Journey, which was published in 2021. I started writing plays by accident. When I started writing, I had no theatre or playwriting training. An important ethos of TNS back then, which has lasted until today, was the focus on research and process. Because none of us were trained in theatre, there wasn't a theatre studies programme at the university back then, we decided to work together and be a collective resource for each project. For instance, we would share stories about our backgrounds, our different cultural sensibilities and so on. We would also create a lot of improvisations, what we called devising. So a common phrase back in the day would be, let's devise a play. A phrase which was usually met with cheers more so than jeers. This was because devising meant everyone had a say. Everyone could contribute in some form or other through improvisations or research or feedback. There was structure and hierarchy minus the authority. Unquote. So as we have mentioned before, we can see the importance of people coming up once again, the importance of the fluidity of professional roles. All these play a key part in the devising process that is unique to TNS. Harish's first device play was Lanterns Never Go Out. It was written in 1989, first staged as a lunchtime play and then eventually presented at the Singapore Arts Festival 1990, as mentioned in episode 2 with Tisa Ho Eng. Do you remember anything about Lanterns Never Go Out? I really enjoyed it. and I think it was a very touching story and it's, I think, resonated with many of us. You know, the idea that you have your set of dreams and then, but, you know, it doesn't match what society. I, I think that was a theme that was very popular in those days. I was not really involved in that, but I do remember the romantic story of them being, they're being discovered by Tisa Ho for the Singapore Arts Festival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she spotted them. She saw yeah. the first production I and she, she asked them to be in the Singapore Arts Festival. The tickets were sold out. How did that make you feel as arts manager? before your time. So it's before my time. It's before my time. I think it was very exciting. I mean, it's always nice to feel that the show was... And I, I, I do think TNS, in terms of its its uh, audience appeal, it was definitely building up, you know. So so it was good to get a kind of uh, validation, right? Again, I think it, it really is about that that particular context because everyone was very excited about local work. You know, Pao Kun's plays were very hugely popular at that point in time because we were all like, oh my God, we're seeing multiracial, multilingual, multicultural work on stage. It was such a nice sort of contrast to the the kind of very Anglophile kind of work that had been done previously. Mm. Yeah. About recognising your own self on stage. I yeah, guess. yeah. The mm, mm, context for mm. that. Okay, so we are going to move on to 1992. That was the year that TNS was registered as a professional theatre company. 
The National Arts Council was established in 1991 and very swiftly grants were to follow. The first one was the travel grant in 1992, which went to went on to help TNS to bring steel building to Cairo. There was also a grant to start the theatre in education branch in 1992, and that was very useful for the Theatre for Youth Ensemble. In 1993, there was the SEED grant, and it's interesting to note that TNS was the first to receive the SEED grant. And that same year, the theatre grant scheme was started, and that is interestingly today's major company grant. Why this is significant is because it actually paved the way to the development of their three branches in 1995, and these were the Community Service for Theatre Branch, the Theatre for Youth, as well as their annual main seasons. So the company was obviously morphing, moving in a particular direction as you were getting organised and things like that. I think things uh, started to change. For example, the housing, you moved to 126 Canehill Arts Centre and this is a quote for the necessary stage, for instance, moving into the new premises means moving out of the bedroom of its president, Elvin Tan, which has served as the company's headquarters for five years. And the offer from NAC could not be more timely for the group has just turned professional. And Elvin says, it's a relief, really, because my bedroom is quite claustrophobic. This was uh, taken from the Straits Times in 1992. And in 1992, very, very quickly in that same year, the company presented Still Building at the Cairo International Festival of Experimental Theatre. Again, I'm going to highlight the show run. The dates were 1st to the 10th of September, so a significantly longer run. Five performances, though. This was a restaging of Still Building what Sulim mentioned early on as uh, something that was very iconic. yeah. First presented for Theatre on the Hill in 1991. This was a theatre and arts carnival organised by the then Theatre Works on Fort Canning Hill. It was supported by the NAC travel grant of $7,000 and it covered airfares for seven participants. This was a subsidy. This was after a subsidy by Singapore Airlines. There was also free accommodation and transport. I think this must be a very exciting time, right? Where you're thinking of really quite substantial sponsorship, both from the government as well as from corporates. You want to tell us a little bit about what you remember, Clarice? Actually, I don't because I didn't get to go on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, because it, seven performers, they leave someone yeah, behind, right? No, yeah. Production <laughs> managers usually get left behind. <laughs> it, it was very exciting for the company to bring a show abroad. And it was a show that was really significant for the company as well in terms of the devising process, in terms of the kind of methodology, the presentation style, very TNS. Lah. So I, I think that that was what was, was really important about that particular show. And that year seemed like a very busy year because you all also started the Theatre for Youth branch. Mm. Just give a couple of figures here. The company received a $16,200 grant from NAC to start TIE. Mm. Yeah? And NAC saw that TIE was a way of building up to a future audience base for Singapore. You started with a launch of Legend of Bukit Merah. That was a theatre and education programme. The aim really was in theatre work with and for the young people and with different communities in Singapore. The work included presenting short plays during school assemblies, interactive theatre and education programmes, workshops, and process-based drama programmes that focus on personal development. Now, I, I think this is worth highlighting because actually NAC would then start the NAC AEP programmes a year later. Yes. You remember this moment? Yes. Yeah. It feels like theatre at that point in time, the growth was really galvanised because there was the whole education lens 
that we were all looking through. Yeah, I think of course to to it's multi prong, right? You, I think creating work or presenting work in schools, working with schools is also, to be frank, it's also a, a revenue source, it's income source, sure. and, and it's important because I think sometimes you do main season shows, you may not break even, and. But it's also important to note that I think for, for Elvin and Haresh, working with students and young people is really important as part of the DNA of what, what TNS's work is about. And those days was very exciting because I think when we created Legend of Bukimera, for example, that form had not been done, as far as we know, in school. So I think I think different practitioners have been doing workshops and so on. And I think the notion of an assembly play is not new, but... But the idea of going in, and, and in, in some ways it was a real privilege, right, that they would give us a group of students for an afternoon for us to work with three hours for, with them. And so you present a little short play with a dilemma in it, and then you get the students all enrolled. So as you know, the story of the Legend of Chimera, the, the students were other villagers or fishermen, and we gave them all sarongs to wear. Yeah, things we can't do now with safe management, huh? but anyway, <laughs> we yes. gave them all sarongs to wear. So everyone was enrolled, and each group had a facilitator who acted in role with them. And then you present them a situation, how do we save, we call him Abdullah in the, in the play, mm. you know, despite the fact that he had saved the whole village and so on. So that kind of investment, you just think about how many people, I think it was five people per show, five mm. facilitators, and they're working for three hours with the students was actually an expensive thing to do mm. if you think about manpower resources and all that. But it was very, very rewarding. I think that was, I think for me, very significant about the kind of work that TF, uh, Theatre for Youth branch was doing. Yeah. yeah. And I think also very holistic because I'm reading here that the drama workshops, don't they didn't just focus on acting, but also on directing, playwriting, production and stage management. Yeah, okay. So we ran a series of workshops. I can't say uh, many schools were interested in the production workshops. I guess the other ones were always more exciting. But we did do a couple of workshops. There were schools. And I'm trying to remember, was it a 12-hour... I think it was quite a number, like four sessions of three hours kind of thing. Mm, where I would take them from working with a script, you know, and then looking at what kind of props were needed. And then we would simulate it basically, you know, and then run in class. Looking back, actually, that was the, the, the genesis of the workshops that I, I ran quite recently because I was also involved in M1 Peer Pleasure, right? The, theater fest, the Youth Theatre Festival. We, we actually have a group, we have a program called the Ninja Program, right? Where we, we brought in, you know, students would sign up or young people would sign up for these. And, and did something similar with them to introduce them to the various aspects of production itself mm. and then stage management, production management. And then they would crew on the festival so the M1, I mean, so so you can see that journey, the development of it, and the festival provided opportunities for them to work on the show. Mm-hmm. So that that was the one thing we didn't manage to do for the production workshops back then, right? They would do quite dry like in a way, drama club, right? Then you do then then what do you do with the skills you learn, isn't it? Right? But for M1 peer pleasure, we actually managed to put them on shows to work. Mm, wonderful. So, yeah. And you actually reached, at its height, I think about 800,000 students actually had seen some of the shows and this this actually paved the way to drama programs, piloted drama programs for school curriculum. And then TNS continued to work with numerous non-governmental organisations and voluntary welfare organisations as well. So this proved to be something that had a maximum reach, I think. Um, in 1992, another big programme came about and this was the Creative Arts Program, yeah, by MOE. It was established on the 12th of March, 1990, by the Ministry of Education's Gifted Education Unit in collaboration with NUS, the Department of English Language and Literature. This is an annual creative writing program for secondary and junior college students. 
So you mentioned Elfian Saad earlier on, the playwright that we know. He's with Wild Rice now. Elfian Saad took part in the creative arts program twice in 1992 and 1994, where he was under the mentorship of Haresh Sharma. So Elfin actually really had his roots in TNS. And one of his plays, Blackboard's White Walls, written in 1997, was subsequently staged by TNS. In 1993, the NAC AEP program that was launched in 1993, as I said, there was an annual tote board grant to cover subsidies for student theatre tickets by 50%. Was this helpful for um, bringing students, audience to TNS shows? I think it was. It's, if I remember how it was explained to me, because I joined one and a half years later, right? It certainly helped bring students to schools, but I think there was also the unexpected consequence of the AEP program that it actually drew a lot of other operators to offer quotation marks arts programs for schools so that you had a lot of poorer players just setting up businesses to offer programs to schools because of this kind of subsidy. So you had genuine players like TNS and all the other arts companies you named earlier. After a couple of years, we were outnumbered by the other players. Oh. Yes. So it worked well for, for the beginning. Then you had these unintended consequences come in. Yeah, because you know, the, the, now the landscape is populated by many what we call vendors like from a school point of view, right? And these are not necessarily companies. that They might be training companies, if you put it that way, but not necessarily arts companies at heart. Mm. But now, lots of people are, offer arts programs for schools. Which is why you now have this vetting yeah. process in place by National Arts Council, because of what happened then. Yeah. Wow, okay. This is definitely something that's interesting. Were, were there discussions amongst the managers of the more genuine companies, if I can quote you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we needed discussions. I think we all individually fed back to National Arts Council officers who we were very directly in touch with. Mm-hmm. Was it Melian who was in charge of I cannot remember. this at the time? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Earlier on, we had mentioned that Julius took on, Julius Fu, that is, took on an admin role as well. He was the admin manager for the Theatre for Youth Ensemble. And Clarice, you did the production coaching for this ensemble, yeah. They were the first young professional theatre company to receive the NAC Seed Money Grant of $50,000. That was in 1993. And this is a one-off grant to help young arts groups with a track record to establish themselves. Could I just ask a question? This Theatre for Youth Ensemble, TNS doesn't have it anymore, right? No, it just ran for three years, I think. It's just for three years, yeah. yeah. Just wondering, these these, um, initiatives, they come and go. Is what are, what are some of the challenges that you saw with these ensembles? Because I think TNS also had a full-time theatre ensemble before, right? I think the, the two are quite different in terms of you know, function, if you put it that way. I think our full-time actors ensemble was really to work on the main season plays. And I, I think it's always a dream for every company to, to have that. Look at what Nine Years Theatre has done with their ensemble, which I understand they're not able to continue with anyway. Mm. But I think it was a very expensive venture, like, even for, for TNS yeah, back so then. Yeah, so the full-time yeah. actors ensemble, when they started it, I agreed with Elvin and Harish, you try it for a couple of years mm. and then make a decision after that whether you want to try to continue it because it will use up a significant portion of your reserves. That's how expensive it was. But they wanted to take the artistic gamble and try it out. And then at the end of the two years, it was decided not to spend that kind of money anymore and to, to do it slightly differently. Mm. But for mm. the Theatre for Youth Ensemble in 1993, what that was about was that there were so many enthusiastic young people wanting to get involved in theatre. They were trying to volunteer with us or, I know, just asking for roles and stuff. 
So for these young people from what, ages of 14? 14 to 18, I think. To mm. 18, maybe, yeah, 14 to 18-ish. TNS started this thing, and this is before I joined them, but they were so generous with their time, right? They had the kids come in every weekend almost. Oh, I remember year. now. Yeah, but but they with them there were a lot of sessions because mm. you know they came in for for workshops, right? We ran workshops for them, and then we we gave them. Then they decided what they wanted to specialize in. So we had playwrights, we had directors, we had production people. Yeah, no. So from, yeah. The, the early set of workshops don't get this wrong. It was workshops offered by Elvin, by Harish, you know. So by all the main core members of TNS, really, yeah. and Clarice, of course, doing the production and stage management. Then, yeah. the, of course, the interesting part is the second half of the year where they each write their own pieces. You know, teenagers yeah, the, writing the, the, short pieces. Short angsty pieces, I must say. And then Clarice and the people who had chosen to specialise in production, stage management, would help to create these pieces and, you know, put them on stage. And that's when we toured the libraries with them. Mm. Mm. And yeah. this is also... Actually, no, the CCs and the libraries. I think both we did. Libraries and CCs. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the libraries more. Yeah. Anyway... So it lasted for three years and why it didn't continue is really because I think these people felt tired and we ran out of steam. Mm. You know, it's a kind of burnout because this is on top of their all the other parts of their full-time job. Not to mention that when you, when you work with young people, you always have a pastoral care yes. slash mentorship role. So mm. you, you don't just see, they're not just here to theatre skills. Very often, you also need to take an interest and care for them. Mm. And, and that's very tiring because these are teenagers, right? And, and they have their problems and so on. So inevitably they all the chickens come home to roost and then you know you have to spend time with them with these things as well it's very costly like, in that sense mm. yeah so mm. it, it is tiring yeah it does help to explain why there was also a proliferation of local writing because mm. there was all this investment there's all that mentorship mm. that went into it yeah Going into being an arts manager, I mean, both of mm. you did not study arts management formally anyway, going into it. So when we talk about this term arts manager now, this is being, of course, offered as uh, a course in many institutions, right? Arts management and things like that. What comes to your mind? What do you think when, when students come to you or you hear people say, I, I'm studying arts management? Oh, well, the, I think the whole skill set comes to mind. Administrative skills, organisational skills, leading people, coaching uh, people with you, team building, financial management. And then if you are in an organisation, setting up the institu institution, maybe working with a board of directors, different levels of volunteers, volunteer management, everything. Okay. How about you, Clarice? Well, everything she said, but, but as a production manager, I... Uh, I, I kind of resist the notion that a production manager is an arts manager only because in my head, it, it because we work so much with production people and uh, on the technical side of things that I see us as a separate category. I, I know in courses that are taught in school these days, you probably do both sets. And I, I think in Republic Poly, I think you can choose one or the other if I'm not wrong. Yeah, but I usually when people say arts manager, I, I don't think of myself as an arts manager. I think of mm. myself as a production person. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I guess the big distinguisher is the financial responsibilities at a slightly different level, mm. organisation-based rather than production-based. And of course, there's the marketing and fundraising. Yep. Mm. What do you feel are some of the necessary disciplines to study to become an arts manager of today? Wow. As an untrained production manager, I, I, I must say it still gives me imposter syndrome, the fact that I didn't train for it and that I have no, no formal technical background. I... I think if you ask me whether production managers need to be trained that way, 
I would say no. But in terms of the skill set, yes. I mean, not so different from the admin side of things, right? The planning, the organizational skills, the people skills, preferably. And then the technical know-how, enough to know how to do some good planning. I think that's basically it. And a lot of things you learn from experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that if you study a course and then you, you go out into the field that it would match the whatever theory that you have studied anyway. But a lot of learning happens on the job. There's no two ways about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I do admire the early TNS guys, <laughs> the group, because they did every workshop that there was to do. If British Council ran a mm. workshop on lighting, they would attend. If, you know, there was a talk on growing audiences for the arts, they would attend. I mean, we were pretty hungry because, you know, there were no courses available. So we did all that. Yeah, n- none of us were in a sense trained. I mean, the only people who were trained, if you put it that way, was the fact that Alvin and Harish eventually went and did their master's, right? Mm. Other than that, everyone else... We got uh, stuff out of books, yeah, yeah. <laughs> magazines, you, you know? just You just learned where you could. And there was no Google in those days. Mm. Mm. So that networking was very important, right? Building the, the people's skills, getting to know others, see who could throw in some favours, who was willing to give up some mm-hmm. time as well. And uh, Sulin, what you're talking about, I think paying people, uh, making sure that they could, they could actually support themselves mm. was the responsible thing to do as well. In this episode, we also want to take a look at the challenges of the arts manager during some of the controversies in Singapore theatre history. TNS has also faced brushes with controversy. For example, the proscription of the participatory form known as Forum Theatre that happened in the early part of the 1990s. TNS found itself embroiled in a, I would say, nightmarish Marxist scandal after it was reported that Alvin Tan and Harish Sharma had attended workshops on Forum Theatre and Drama Therapy in New York, conducted by Augusto Boal, a Brazilian Marxist theatre practitioner as well. The implication was that the group was using theatre as a political tool and it narrowly avoided closing down. And history has it that Forum Theatre wouldn't be allowed funding until the year 2000. Or, or slightly beyond. The challenge of censorship was also an issue when government funding was revoked for their 1993 play Off Centre, which dealt with the grave issue of mental illness. Funding was revoked by the Ministry of Health due to the play's realistic depiction of mental illness and the depiction of full frontal nudity. So we'd be interested to find out how the company coped in some of these years. What were some of the discussions amongst the arts managers during those times? I think, funnily enough, the incident that TNS went through with the Forum Theatre helped also remove some of my belief in the legal system and made it more... It brought about my leaving sooner. Mm-hmm. Basically, the Straits Times ran an article that called um, Elvin and Harish Marxists and that they were doing Marxist work mm. was the implication. So that really upset me because we all know the history of internal security detentions in Singapore. I think I don't need to go into that. So using the word Marxist is really a pointer to that. Mm-hmm. And I knew that in the legal system, you had no recourse under the internal security detention rules and regulations and laws. So that was disillusioning for me. Mm. What was the feeling like? that You felt that you wanted to help them to clear the air, to clear the reputation? Well, actually, their reputation wasn't too badly off because I think Tommy Ko, Professor Tommy Ko, to his credit, came out in their defence almost immediately after the article came out. Mm. And members of the public wrote in as well, interestingly enough, um, of their own volition. And actually, I happen to know one of them, and he's not even a regular theatre-goer, but he had seen only one of their plays, and he wrote in. Anyway, I think it just 
not so much that I wanted to help them, but I, it just disillusioned me from the law a bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then I was ready, I was ripe when they approached me to take the role on. And yeah, it does seem a bit silly to come into a company which just had this controversy and might be losing sponsors and had lost the uh, school bookings, etc. Right? But I guess I like a challenge, so I tried. Yeah. There you go. An arts manager who likes a challenge. I think <laughs> you'll find more than, than less. Uh, I just want to illuminate the situation at that time a little bit. Looking at some of the records, ticket prices at that point in time, let's say in 1988, they cost about $5. But they rose as high as about $20 by 1992 and you joined in 1994. There was an ST article as well in 1992 that stated that TNS shows still did very well because they were accessible to the audiences mm-hmm. and perhaps this is this is speaks to the fact that there were members of the public that were really staunch supporters. They they really formed a very uh, strong audience base for TNS and they knew their work and, and believed in, in kind of the voices that they were trying to represent in society. Professor Tommy Ko, of course, back then was the chairman of the National Arts Council. So that that was uh, clearly very influential. But of course, in terms of timing, this came after that Marxist conspiracy or controversy that you had just spoken about. Was it difficult to sell tickets after that? I think, okay, so I have been reminded that the school bookings definitely took a hit because after the article came out, or rather the journalist um, behind the article already approached schools to ask them leading questions about what they thought about having Marxist-trained artists do programs in their school. So there were a lot of cancellations that year mm. of school programs that you know normally brought in money and also had sponsorship behind them. Luckily, or because of the good relationships TNS had built up and maintained, the sponsors stayed with TNS. So that mm. was great. The school bookings took a while to climb back, so we focused some effort on marketing to the schools in the next two years. You know, sending out the information, lots of follow-up calls, it was really hard work because you know no one was online. Teachers didn't have their own emails. You basically called the staff room and tried to catch someone. Really hard sales work. Community work, strangely enough. We, we reached an agreement to go to Tampanese Regional Library at the end of that same year, 1994. And we started work in 95. So I think the article maybe didn't carry as much weight as it might have, thankfully. Any lessons to be learned here about how the arts manager wants to manage press relationships from this episode? That one's tricky, I think, because I think I think initially when when it happened, okay, so so we actually had insider info that this article was going to come out, right? And we know that there was a debate in the editorial room that very evening, and we we had we we knew what was happening. I mean, of course, we were scared, right? Who wouldn't be? Article comes out and then we were like, you know, is ISD going to come knocking, right? And something that we had to, we had to, I remember that evening we all stayed late, myself, Elvin Haresh, and we were talking about, okay, so what happens uh, if the article comes out tomorrow uh, and then we get called in and then we, should we tell our parents first, you know, that kind of thing. But the thing was that I, I think the, the journalist did, did ask Elvin and Haresh for a statement, but I think it was difficult because do you give a statement and if it, and, and what if the statement is misconstrued, right? So so I, I don't know. If we had a, a more savvy, like did we need someone to advise us on yeah. how to handle this kind of press queries? There was no PR specialist, no, yeah. no media trained person in mm. the staff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like now, I mean, now at least you, we have the recourse of, of rebuttal, if nothing else, through social media, right? In those days, it was just the Straits Times and which was it was all by insinuation the article Mm. and we didn't know how to handle it if you try and give an answer would it be twisted in some manner 
Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. There was, of course, another issue involving censorship with Off Center, and that was in 1993 where government funding was revoked. I know, Sulin, this was a little before you joined full time. TNS won a tender to produce the play. But they lost $30,000 worth of sponsorship from the Ministry of Health. And this play was interesting. It dealt with the grave issue of mental illness. And of course, Off Centre is now really part of the Singapore canon. It, it's studied in schools and things like that. Basically, it was uh, the sponsorship was revoked due to the company's refusal to make quote-unquote technical changes requested. And some of these changes included changing the mental illness from schizophrenia to common depression. I think NAC also disapproved of full frontal nudity that was going to be seen at the end of the play and recommended that this be cut off. Mm. Now, we read that the company actually initially self-imposed an RA rating for this full frontal nudity. Remember this episode quite yes. vividly? How did you... I know, Sulin, this is before you joined. How did you recall how the company reacted to this and how they managed? I wasn't in TNS, but I remember it well because I was a volunteer mm -hmm. and they approached me to ask a legal question. TNS, they asked me about whether they could go on with the play after the commissioning body or agency had revoked their commission. Could they do that or could they be sued by Ministry of Health? You know, because the play had been funded, sort of commissioned by them in a sense. Mm. That's how they asked me the question. I, I didn't know it was a tender, but I said, if it's a, you know, whatever it is, if they are paying you to do the play, but they didn't put a clause in the contract to say they own the rights, the copyright is with you, you can go ahead. I heard a little bit of the background when they asked me that question, which is that they had spent so long working on the play, devising it. So cast, playwright, director, doing the research, interviewing people with mental illness, interviewing caregivers, medical personnel. They were very invested in the play. They mm -hmm. didn't want to stop. They wanted to go ahead with it, even if they, it meant they were paid even less than usual mm -hmm. because of the funding being pulled. Yeah. So luckily, I was able to tell them that they had the copyright, they owned the rights because they were the creators and they could go ahead. And Off Centre went on to do very well. I think it was the audiences really enjoyed it and felt it was relevant. I think it's still being used as a text in schools. I mean, as arts managers, you know, working back then with the controversy, now looking at it, what are your feelings? <laughs> I think, I think that the, the important thing to note is that even back then, I think the company didn't want to back down from it because I think the objection that MOH had, which was that uh, the play portrayed mental illness in an unnecessarily negative light, was a, a criticism we, we could not agree with. I think a lot of work had been done, as Sulin said, into the research. It was a very personal piece for, for the team that was working on it. I think several people had uh, friends and family who were struggling with mental illness. And that journey in Singapore especially, you know, it's not easy. I think, I think and that's why the play still resonates because many of the issues surrounding the way uh, mental health patients are treated, the, the way the system, the, the entire system in Singapore works and so on, is still relevant. It's still true today. Mm. So... It, it was a criticism that was unfair like, in a way and, and I don't think anyone wanted to back down to say yes we agree with you you know and so the idea that we would have to give up money okay I'll give up money then we will push on and actually present it and I think that paid off because I think the audiences agreed with us mm -hmm. that the play was moving touching powerful and it's, it's certainly for me one of the, the, the highlights of my TNS career in that sense because mm. I really it was a really important production for me as well Was it a watershed moment to self-impose so. self-impose uh, RA rating? <laughs> I, I think the whole rating thing was just coming into thing, if I remember correctly and I, but I don't think so the idea was was that the company thought that the, the, the full frontal nudity was really important at the climax of the play and I think we, we had taken into consideration the need to be 
sensitive where the audience was concerned. I think the character, the, the protagonist in that sense, at a critical moment just before committing suicide, that he they would strip down to nothing was important, but we had planned strobe lighting and so on to not disguise, but to make it more indirect, right? This full frontal nudity thing. And, and even suggested the, the rating for it. But clearly, NEC felt that that perhaps the, the, rate, the rating and to allow the full frontal nudity would not be a good thing. But we had taken care of it. And I don't think we had any complaints from any of the audience that it was a problem. Because I think it was really a very powerful moment. It, was a, it built up to that point. I, I think people were shell-shocked, not from the nudity at any point. I, yeah. I don't think... And, and really, I think we did it in such a way where... It wasn't in your face. Mm, yeah. If I remember catching one of the runs, actually, there was um, silence when people just saw it. It was almost like Correct. they could not believe that it was happening. I managed to watch the original cast as well. So that's interesting. Um, I guess I have one more question and that relates to what Sulin was saying, devising the work. You had said that also, Clarice, that the cast had very personal experience devising the work. What kind of control do you feel arts managers need to have or when you're working with a group that devises everything? Because you almost never know what's coming your way. It's not that when you devise that there is no structure at all. I think that's important to note. I think devising, of course, I think for marketing people it might be scarier because you don't know what the play is going to be. But I think it's very important in a process where device is concerned that the production team is in very close touch with the production, right? So you know where it's going, although you don't know exactly where it's going to land. It's not, I mean, of course, there are two ways, right? One is that uh, you device, 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 you finish devising. Then the production, the design team comes and says, okay, but but that has its pros and cons, right? Because you you then treat it at from the production team's point of view, you treat it then as a as a scripted play, and then you work from there, right? But the merit, of course, of doing it the other way, which is that the team journeys with you all the way, is that you can try things out. And I think that that, that is actually part of, if I'm not wrong, TS's methodology even now, right? That the designers come in early and even from phase one development, they're there to to support, to create, to improvise, and to work with. Uh, I think in those days, we, uh, because our, our timelines were really long, I, I don't think the designers came in early. But still, I think the fact that, that the production team was in touch with the production early enough, you, you can anticipate like, where things are going. And I, I think in terms of, of staging a show, I don't think Elvin and Harish were ever extravagant. I think their aesthetic and their style uh, have never been one that is you know, like tremendously costly. I can't say about now, huh? <laughs> but <laughs> back then, I think we were always very careful with money. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and we, and, and the aesthetic, like I said, it was very minimalist anyway. So, yeah. it, it wasn't a big problem. In fact, I think I think some of the shows where we we, we might have busted our budget were not shows that Elvin and Harish themselves no. would direct. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not no, the but show. But the, the yeah. trouble with devised work is, of course, for the marketing and admin team especially in those days where you have to get your publicity out early because it has to be printed physically and distributed physically. So you can only go with stuff like these artists are involved, this is the theme we're looking at, this is the question we asked ourselves and then you hope it doesn't go too far away from that. Mm. So you learn creative writing. <laughs> to be very creative because every show is like that, you can't keep saying that, right? And then once in a while you hit a bad patch where, you know, and I was, remember there was one festival we told Ching Li the title was what something to do with superheroes? I can't remember. 
It Super was Super Friends. Hit, Super Friends. Super Friends. And the Hall of Justice. Hall of Justice. <laughs> but, but it was that in the Which end. Which seemed no? to imply a certain kind of content, but the content came out rather different. And I think she was quite unhappy with us. Ah. Oh. <laughs> up. I, I mean, As a festival manager. I seem to remember that was at Victoria Theatre. This is the one you were talking mm. about, is it? Drama Centre. Is it? Okay, yeah. okay. So now that we say that, Clarice, you said that, oh, you don't know about now what the, what Alvin and Harish's style is like and things like that. Can as, I still quite minimalist from the shows I watched? <laughs> <laughs> so as arts managers until today, how do you cope with the evolving needs of the artists and the designers? Because you're in the business of managing it all, right? I mean, I, I took a 15-year hiatus in between, right? So To teach? Yes, to teach. Those who can't teach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think what I did then has shaped my taste in terms of the work I do. So coming back here now, this of course many things have become much more professional. And I, I, I quite like that, I have to be honest. As much as I miss some of the gung ho, boating ho kind of a thing that we used to do in the past, it's nice to come back and, and we have uh, very well trained professionals, very expert. I mean I, I do feel a little out of my depth to be honest. And so the the whole imposter syndrome because many more people these days are trained, right? But I think processes have also changed in that there are different designers with different working styles and then knowing who to work with for different productions is also important. Yeah. And of course, one of the, the biggest sort of changes I see have to do with safety, for example, and care and concern for practitioners, which I think is still evolving, but still important. I think I think in those days, like when we were devising right in those days, it's not that we did not consider, I'm sure we did. And I, I think Elvin and Harish have always been very careful working with people. But I think the articulation of those concerns wasn't there. And today they are. Now we talk about safe spaces. We talk about perm permission. We talk about consent in, in rehearsal yeah. rooms, right? And then in the devising process, what is, what is ethical, right? I think it's not widespread, but I see more of these conversations happening, which I think is something I appreciate. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right that it's better articulated now but I think Elvin and Harish were always so Ethical, careful yeah. so yeah. often had counsellors in the rehearsal room mm. for that reason yeah. yeah, but I think I think that's, that's something which I see more of in, in a general sense now which I think is important now because something just because Elvin and Harish were more in tune with the need to mm. do that you know uh, preceded this kind of industry standard that we should expect actually mm. yeah anything to add Sulit for yourself? Well, I think, with the change, you know. I think arts management remains at the root the same, but I've matured a little bit as a manager. And I... Because I, I started off coming as in as a lawyer, right? And I, that's an independent professional. So you have to learn how to manage a team. And then after that, you have to learn to be more interested in processes and making sure that people can follow processes as the organisation grows more complex, right? Apart from all the ongoing firefighting or fundraising and what have you. Actually, yes. Actually, in that sense, the landscape uh, is much more diverse now. So a lot of the things that we struggled with in the early days in TNS is still true today. Mm. But for the emerging groups, lah, right? So I, I work with groups where designers are, are, are interested, but they may not be trained theatre designers. And then, of course, now expectations are much higher. You go into a venue like Esplanade, for example, there's paperwork to be expected and so on, which sometimes there are designers who may not be familiar with the with yes. doing things according to so-called industry standards or industry, you know. Yeah. So so that there is that challenge. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work I do with small companies is exactly that. 
Yeah. And, and as always, the, the artists have to be their own managers first and write their own grant applications oh, and stuff. Absolutely. So that's so, still going on, right? So, yeah. People so have to learn. so I, I work with I work with veteran artists actually, people like Zelda and Art Fendi, right? And but but they they if in the best of all possible worlds they, they would have their own producers, but they don't. Mm. Right? So that's always a challenge. They, you don't then you produce your own work, that's that's tough. Actually it's tougher today, I feel. It's tougher today it's because tough. I think there are certain infrastructures that are in place. So if you are, it's like not learning to learn to work the computer, for example, you would be left behind a little bit. And I suppose at a time where COVID-19 is still raging, going on longer and longer, there are also new things that I expect. No, but also, also there's more competition, right? Ah. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put a word out there for, for artists who are, been around on the scene for a while. You know, I think, I think people are always excited to support young people, mm. right? But you have veteran artists who, who want to produce and direct, or not produce, they want to create their own work. They don't want to produce, but they want to create their own work. But then who picks up on this? Because every company has its own individual team or its own individual focus, right? right. But then we, we do have actually a lot of artists who are, who are older, definitely should still be on the scene, but who produces their work? Fair Inter question. Fair Interestingly, question. there is a good crop of young producers, I think, but still too few of them. Yeah, and also I think it's tough because for young producers, they're probably still getting used to networking and then also finding the right fit. Lah. Producer and, and... always financial question, right? Can I raise enough money for the show and then how do I pay myself? Correct. All right. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences, your memories, your stories with us here on Backlogs today. This has been Serene and with me was Clarice Ng as well as Go Sulin. Thank you and see you the next time. You've just come to the end of another episode of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, people and institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each episode. For more resources with regard to arts management in Singapore, head to the resources page on the website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg, which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs.sg. If you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like more, do support our fundraising efforts. We are raising funds to support the operational costs of manpower, equipment and resources in order to keep this podcast going. You may find the donation link on our website as well as our social media channels. This first podcast series is presented by Centre 42 and Singlet Station together with researchers Dr. Ho Su Fun and Dr. Cheryl Julia Lee. It is supported by the National Arts Council Singapore. Thank you for listening.